He lost his wife. He had bad addictions. He was a drug addict and an alcoholic. His kids resented him and wouldn't talk to him any longer. He had the look of a man who was always about to have the shakes of delirium tremens. He lost his job. His boss tried to get him help, but he didn't want any help. He, he didn't look at himself in the mirror and see somebody of value. It wasn't even just that he had an addiction. He didn't love himself. One night, one very, very dark night, he found himself in a flea bag flop house. And what's scary about that is he didn't know how he got there. He was surrounded by little bottles of vodka everywhere. And on the table was the residue of cocaine that he had been using. Now, I don't aim to trigger any of you, so if this does trigger you, excuse yourself. I care about your mental health, so I don't want you to be bothered by this. And for the children, I'm sorry, but this is the story. That's your warning. He felt the sensation of metal in his mouth, and he realized that he was about to make that ultimate decision that you can't walk back from. He trembled, despaired, lost. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. It doesn't have to get that far for you perhaps to feel that way. But those feelings can happen in our lives. We can feel lost and despair, and he, he did. And then he had an epiphany. Y'all ever have one of those? A sudden moment of realization. Maybe it was God. Maybe it was his own mind kicking in again. Maybe the clarity of that moment, that moment on the edge of the precipice of life makes clarity happen. Maybe it was clarity. Or maybe, maybe it was the words of his boss or his ex-wife or the thoughts of his children's face. But he had an epiphany that maybe, just maybe, Life is worth living for. And so he grabbed a phone book. Now, for the children in the room, we used to have these things called phone books. You'd open it up and look at listings and phone numbers that way. And he went to the back pages, which is yellow pages, which is the business stuff, and he found the CH, and he went down to churches, and he called the first church that didn't sound like a crazy church to him, he wasn't a church guy, but he wanted to know who he was calling. I know there are some churches that like to go by like names like, I don't know, Rocket Fuel or Collision or whatnot. He didn't know what that was. So he was looking for the word Christian. And he found a small Christian church, called it, and the pastor was there. The pastor not only had a 12-step program in the church's ministry, but was a recovering addict himself. And the pastor said, hold on, I'll be right there, I'm coming to get you. And he drove over to the motel, the flea bag Flophouse Motel. And he picked the guy up and he took him under his wing. And in Christian terms, we say he discipled him. In the work world, we call it mentoring. But he discipled him, trying to show him the way of Jesus and step by step, this broken man began to put his life back together. After he was put together fairly well, the church thought it'd be nice to have him give a testimony. We like that in the church. We love when we have people get up and tell the story of redemption in their lives, and we like it to be messy. 
We love the drama. Nobody ever asked people who were raised in the church who had a relatively straightforward life into the baptismal waters and really haven't done too much off the rails to give a, a testimony. We usually don't want to hear that story because it doesn't, you know, sell. We like the ones with drama where the darkness has been walked through. So he got up to give his testimony to the church. And he told the reason why he, the church, the reason why he began to be a Christian. What was the reason for following after God in his life after he'd been down the boulevard of broken dreams? It was so that he could get his kids back. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why people find themselves following the way of God through, revealed through Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of reasons. And, and quite frankly, whatever gets you there is good by me. But is that the best reason? Do we follow after God because it will get us what we want in return? There's a lot of reasons to follow God. There's a lot of reasons to seek the way of God. I was at a family reunion a couple summers ago, sitting around a fire, and my cousin's wife is not a believer. And she had lost a loved one in her family, and she felt broken on the inside. You know that sting of grief? She had it. She didn't know how to reconstruct her life again. You ever feel that way when you've been grief-struck? As we're sitting around the fire late with a group of us, she began saying all the way she thinks she felt, and I used all the good pastoral skills I had on that moment. Do you want to hear these skills? Do you want to hear these tools? Firstly, I did not say everything happens for a reason, because that's bad theology. That's bad theology. Quit saying it. God did not take your mother to teach you a lesson. That's what that implies when you say everything happens for a reason. I did not say, just pray harder. I did not say, well, here's a theological answer for pain and evil in the world. Because theology answers don't make a hill of beans difference when someone's heart is broken and their blood is dripping out on the floor. I said, I'm on your team. I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I'm here for you. And I could tell that another loved one around the fire wanted me to say more. They wanted me to say something like, everything happens for a reason. Or another cliche that you can crochet or knit and put on a pillow on your couch and make you feel warm and fuzzy. He wanted something like that, thinking that would solve some of the pain. Then says to me about trying to convince a person in that moment to believe in God. It was ripe for the harvest. If I could just get her to believe in Jesus in that moment, if I could just get her to confess her sins and follow Jesus, then she can escape hell. There's a lot of reasons people decide to follow God revealed in Jesus Christ. And however it gets you there, I'm happy for it, but I'm not sure this is the best one. I don't know that Christianity is tantamount to fire insurance. Should be better than fire insurance. 
When I read the Gospels, I don't read the sales pitch that says, God just wants to throw you in a pit. Oh, we've discussed this over the last few months. What I really read is a God who gave his own heart for you and loves you. Fear, fearing hell or anything else is a very short-lived emotion. It goes fleeting and quickly. I, I believe that what really brings someone into a relationship with God is something much bigger than a fleeting emotion. It's love. It's love that transforms us. And I know people have come to grace because of fear of hell, but usually they fall in love and that's what sustains them. There are many reasons people say they're Christians. Not all of them are the good ones. In a passage this morning, Jeremiah is speaking a word from God to the people. And God is rather upset. You see, the people of God have forgotten who they are. You ever forgot who you were? Who you're called to be? These were the people who were enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, and God worked on their behalf to let them out of exile, out of slavery, from the narrow confines to the open land of grace. And through the wilderness, God made provision after provision after provision for them. God took care of them. God walked with these people and then gave them a land to call their own, a land that would be flowing with milk and honey, that would plentish their bodies and their souls. And he gave them a way of being and said, you are mine. You are my beloved. You are my son of God. That's what God was calling the people of Israel. But what happens? The people of God begin exchanging God for idols. And he's really harsh at the top of the text. He's really going to town. He's throwing heavy punches against these idols. These are foolish idols Nothing good about them, right? He even mentions Baal. That's how you pronounce the B-A-A-Ls. I understand it. Baal. And in the ancient world, this was a real believed-in deity by the people near the Israelites. They begin to exchange the God who did all this on their behalf for other ideas of divinity. They begin to move their allegiance or share the allegiance with God with other deities. And God's not happy. God's not happy that they forgot who they were and who they were called to be. But I want you to just think about the very end bit. The very end bit is the part that I find so fascinating. I found it fascinating on Friday till today. So let me rehearse that with you. You just got to laugh, right? They exchanged living water for cisterns that are cracked. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, in this period of time, this was the Iron Age, and cisterns were somewhat newly developed in this period of Western culture, and they're absolutely good things. You would dig out an area of land, and you'd put this vessel in, and it could collect water for your life, water that you need. Problem is, sometimes they do crack, and they can become polluted. So they're good, but not as good as the living water. My family likes to go to Blue Heron Nature Preserve. It's near our home. And it's a little nature area we like to walk. And we like to walk up off the trail towards Nancy Creek. There's this little part where we can walk in and wade around. And there's a pool of stagnant, stale water. 
Now it's got life in it. I can see the frogs, and I can see the tadpoles, and I can see the mosquitoes. There's a film on the surface of the water. I wouldn't want to drink it. And it's really pungent in odor. You know, just beyond that, the babbling creek of Nancy Creek goes over rocks. It's pristine. And the sound calms me down. And the vistas make me feel at peace. You know, water as it makes a rapid and goes through rocks is sort of a natural detergent. Ancient people found this out. It purifies more than stagnant bodies of water do. Jeremiah says, they've exchanged the living water, that which is best, for cisterns. That may be good. So here's what I'm trying to glean from Jeremiah today about idolatry and the dangers for modern day Christians. You see, 99% of our lives are not threatened as Christians by idolatry that looks like us going into, I don't know, religious bookstores of other religious kinds or, or New Age stores and buying these ornamental etages of these deities and coming home and worshiping these images. That's not really the nefarious idolatry I see the current church dealing with. The nefarious idolatry that I think is present everywhere is when we take something that is good and we treat it as though it were the end goal of life, or we treat it too highly, or we treat it in such a way as that God is to serve the good rather than the good thing serving God. My point is that God is the end goal of all life. All flourishing life ends in divine union. And anything that's made good in the world should be a part of the tools that we have that lead us closer to God. Any other way around, and we're playing with idolatry. So good Christians of all types, myself included, struggle with idolatry, and we struggle with very good things. Like the family. The family, I believe, is given by God. I believe it's a good thing. I believe the family has a purpose theologically beyond a private group of people who happen to love each other. But the family can definitely become an idol to us. It seems like every contemporary Christian radio station I've heard in the country always talks about safe for the whole family. It seems like it's serving up the family language more than anything else. What's more is I've had people in my church's congregations in the past that you try to get together with them and, and spend time and bond with them. And there's this one family, they were never available, never available. Of course, I know it's busy having kids. You run this way, that, there's soccer, there's softball and all this. But then any night that they had free was always family night. Now, I'm not opposed to a good family night. I like to have family night too. It's delightful playing with my children or watching a movie and having some za. That's northern speak for pizza. But I'd say, well, what do you do on family night? They like to play games. Well, that sounds nice. Turns out the five of them sit in different rooms around the house and play each other on the same video game from different consoles. 
I don't know if they made it an idol, but I knew that it was might as well barricade the door. There was no room for you. That's one thing I admired about my mom so much. Is my mom, basically, if she knew you, you're part of our family. My mom included people all times. Sunday, Sunday dinners filled the house with seniors from our congregation. Christmas time, people come over. My dad and I would sometimes get a little irritated and say, why do we have to talk to these people we don't know? And she'd tell us, well, Jesus would do it. <laughs> oh, hospitality, I forgot about that part. The family was good, but is the family to be served by God? Or is the family really meant to serve us to show God to the world? You see, I think Christian households are not private places of video gaming or private places of fun. I think your home is a little small microcosm of the church. Where it should be a seat of grace, and from your doors, the gospel should go from there to the neighbors around you. I think your family should have a mission. I think it is a mission. A lot of things that are good, do we put them in the wrong order when we compare them with God? American exceptionalism. I thought you guys were going to throw your Bibles at me. Because this one gets close to home. I was talking with someone one day, <clears throat> and we were discussing politics. And you see, I actually have a lot of, bad, a lot of criticisms for the, both the right and our left. A lot of them. And a lot of them come from when I read the Scriptures. And a person looked at me and said, okay, okay, but can you just agree with me that America is the greatest nation in the world? And I thought about it for a second. That was really important for me to admit to, to this person. And I thought to myself for a second, you know what, that is something that people really, really hang on to. But American exceptionalism isn't baked into the beginnings. I went and I started researching where all this stuff comes from. And what I really learned was that a nation is always strong, ideologically speaking, when it has a shared narrative. And at the beginning, we had a very strong shared narrative. It was us looking for our freedom against who? The British. The British Empire. And so that became our strong identity. I don't think there was a whole lot of claim there about it being the best over anybody else. It had a dream. It has genius to the dream. But we were against empire. And we were for self-rule. And that was the thing we had going for a long time until we started one of these wars. It's the worst kind of war you can start called the Civil War. And we got ourselves back on track for a while. And it's not really until the Cold War that you start seeing American exceptionalism being the thing promoted all the time. And the reason why is this, it seems to me. It seems to me that we were maintaining that shared narrative that we're a shining star of light in a dark, dark place. We're not like the dark place of East Berlin and other countries that follow a different ideological path. Now, I'm not defending them. What I'm telling you is, it's a pretty easy thing for us to unify when we have a common enemy, especially a common enemy in our stories. The wall fell. The 80s financial situation turned things around. And we started 
to lose our sense of our story as us being the light against this dark world. Then September the 11th happens, and we tried hard to make it an us versus certain countries in the Mideast, except for the problem is, is we like our oil, and it's hard to give a country the dark vision that we want to have for a country when it's a lot of cell groups we're fighting. You start seeing it crumble again. And then when it crumbles, the danger is, is we start finding ourselves in the light and others in the dark in our own world. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're making others out of each other in this country, aren't we? Aren't we? We're finding ways to fight each other. And when that keeps going, you start seeing very scary things like people trying to take over a capital or people saying, I'm not going to talk to them because they think differently than me. Or I'm going to disown them because they voted for a different person. Or I won't sit in a pew with them. Hmm. How nefarious that is. To love your country is not bad. To be proud of what we have achieved is not a bad thing. But if it's the end-all, be-all, it can become such a corrupted thing. It can hurt us and each other. Jeremiah cautions Don't exchange the living waters for simple cisterns. Don't exchange the best, God, for something even if it's good. Let God be the end goal of all of our lives. And let everything that's good in our life be of service to putting us in the direction of the divine embrace. God bless you.